Hey, this is Rob, and this is episode eight of the Folly Coffee Podcast. Let's get it brewing. All right, for this week's episode, we are getting back to business. Uh, I do not have a background in business. I didn't go to school. I don't have an MBA, all that good stuff. Uh, So no traditional education in uh, business. But the cool thing about today and technology and our accessibility to just anything and everything and all this content that's available out there is you really can teach yourself the things you need to learn on your own time. Now, the four years I spent at Boston Beer were incredibly helpful. Like I almost call it like a real world degree in terms of selling and working with customers and taking on new leads and all the good stuff that happens. And uh, it was a very kind of entrepreneurial role in learning how to sell and how to communicate and just like that whole process. But there's still a lot of things on the business side that I had absolutely no no idea uh, about going into building out Folly Coffee and building out Filterra cold-brewed coffees. And so something I took very seriously was educating myself on the things that I didn't know or even just uh, trying to find experts on things that I thought I knew but could obviously always learn more about everything, and that's something I try to do at all times. So today's episode is going to be my favorite six business books that I have, I'm going to say read, but really listened to because I'm almost purely an audiobook kind of guy with all the driving I do, but my favorite six business books that I read or listened to that have greatly influenced how I think about business and continue to think about business. So without wasting any time, I will get right into it. I'm going to go from uh, top six. I'm going to start at number six and work my way up to my number one favorite all-time business book. I will say the title, who it's by, and a brief explanation and why I like each one. And so the first one at number six is called What the Heck is EOS? That is the Entrepreneur Operating System is what this is referring to with EOS. So the title of the book is What the Heck is EOS? It is by Gino Wickman and Tom Bauer. Uh, that is spelled B-O-U-W-E-R. And then Wickman is W-I-C-K-M-A-N. Uh, like I said, this is about the entrepreneur operating system. This book is more for someone who currently has a business and either has a partner or an employee or employees. Basically, you just need more than one person for this to be applicable. Uh, the entrepreneur operating system is an in-depth system that you can put any business into. Uh, they recommend 150 or fewer employees, seeing how there's three of us at Folly and really like three of us at Filterra. I'd say we're well with un- we're well under 150 employees, but the system is still incredibly helpful. Essentially, what the system is, is it has defined roles within an organization that you assign somebody to. Now you might be thinking, well, I'm the owner of my business. I have 10 different roles and then my employee has maybe a very specific role or uh, we're partners and we both have multiple roles. Well, the system they give you, you can plug and play the same name for multiple roles. The reason I like this book 
is because it's important to think of your organization or business, even in your very early startup stages when you're very, very small, it's very important to think of your business and where it may go someday. Uh, I talked to some small business owners that it's like, eh, it's not worth my time. I, you know, there's only a few of us. It's really easy to stay organized. But the longer, and that's not necessarily untrue. It is fairly easy to know what you're supposed to be doing uh, when you're small because you can have these conversations, but this makes everything crazy crystal clear and what the roles and responsibilities are. And I've had a lot of luck in uh, with Jeff over at Folly and Brandon at Filtera Cold Brew Coffees that uh, luckily our interests align in a way that our roles and responsibilities are very easy to define because let's take Filtera cold brewed coffees, right? Uh, Brandon is in charge of all brewing operations and logistics. I am not particularly interested or have the insane amount of passion that he has in constantly pursuing that side of things and brewing and equipment and custom manufacturing and creating his own brewing mechanisms. Uh, so all of those roles and responsibilities fall within him. And then anything on the sales, marketing, business side for that uh, fall to me. And not to say there's not crossover. There are days that I, I help him with that. He's obviously done sales and marketing for us in some capacities, but when you have these roles very clearly defined, it makes it very easy with anything that happens, who needs to be doing it. And this takes emotion out of the whole deal. And that can be a huge pitfall if you've started a business with someone or if you're a small company with few employees. Emotion can become something that can disrupt a business because you feel as if you're being given work that's not yours or you feel like you're doing too much or on the flip side that you're not given enough responsibility. And so this is an awesome way for each person within an organization, no matter how big or how small, to know exactly what their role is. And then on a weekly basis, uh, there's this thing in that book, uh, What the Heck is EOS is the book. My favorite takeaway is what they call the L10 meeting. It's a meeting that should be held weekly within an organization. And essentially what it is, is you have weekly what are called action items that are assigned at the end of the previous meeting. And an action item is what each person is responsible for doing in the upcoming week. This is awesome because for me, I can get fairly emotional and overwhelmed because there's so many things you could be doing on a weekly business or a weekly basis when it comes to small business. And I definitely take way too much onto my plate and this can cause stress and it can make things kind of convoluted and confusing as to whether you're getting anything done. So it's kind of ironic that if you take on too much, you end up getting nothing done. But with the L10 meeting, you assign on a weekly basis these action items. And so the first thing you do in this weekly meetings is did you or did you not get your action item done that we agreed needed to be done in the previous week? If you did, you check it off. And the idea behind an action item is that once you check it off, it's uh, it's done and you don't have to talk about it anymore. And that's where you waste time in meetings is just constantly talking about stuff that doesn't need to be talked about. Now you give yourself an hour for these meetings, but frequently these can take 15 minutes if it's an efficient week. So action item, did you get it done? Yes, check, done, don't need to talk about it anymore. If it's not done, you'd flag it as an issue and you move that issue to the end of the meeting. 
you don't talk about it then because that's how meetings get off track is you start talking about anything that's wrong at that moment. You move that issue to the end of the meeting. So you go through action items. Uh, there are other things you go through. Read the book if you want to know more about it. But then at the end with the issues, the reason I like this is why didn't you get the action item done? Uh, you know, it could honestly be I, I forgot or I didn't have time. Uh, well, if you forgot, you can. the cool thing about it is, is when you have an issue, the goal is that you can solve it. So if you forgot, where's the core issue of why you forgot? Uh, did I, should I send the reminder? Uh, is there a way of organization that we can stay on top of action items on a weekly basis? Can we identify a way to make sure that no one forgets what's being done on a weekly basis? Uh, if it was something like I didn't have time, then maybe one of the issues you have as an organization is you're assigning too much on a weekly basis or you're having trouble prioritizing. Now, that, that's as much detail as I want to go into like L10 and all that stuff. But you get an idea of even as a small organization, uh, what the heck is EOS? Highly recommend it. It removes emotion out of a lot of decisions. It makes things very streamlined and it makes everybody know exactly what they're supposed to be doing. And then it gives you almost like a sense of calm uh, in the period of a week that you're like, I did what I what we agreed I needed to do in that week. Uh, and when I say we, it's not just someone telling you you have to do this. It's a discussion about why does this need to be done? Uh, is wh What level of priority is it? Is it something that needs to happen right now? Could this wait? Is it a crucial item to get done? So that is What the Heck is EOS by Gino Wickman and Tom Bauer. Uh, at number five, uh, this one was pretty unexpected is, uh, because I don't read a lot of like biographies uh, or autobiographies. I don't know why. After this one, it kind of changed my mind on it. But someone highly recommended Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. Uh, shoe Dog is exactly like it uh, sounds, except it's one word, Shoe Dog. And Phil Knight is the founder of Nike. And this book was absolutely insane. This was something that like I thought I had some like problems and like issues and stress in building my very small businesses over time. And reading Shoe Dog was one of the most insane, like up and down tale of harrowing. Like we almost went on a business and then we're, we're generating millions and millions of revenue. And we get, so essentially I didn't know this, but Nike was founded by Phil Knight. He was a track guy at Oregon, which is a prolific track program. Uh, he decides he wants to start selling shoes. And so he goes over to Japan, finds a manufacturer of a shoe. I think it was called like the Tiger or something like that. Uh, finds a manu shoe manufacturer over there, takes an existing shoe and starts selling it on in the Pacific Northwest. Starting to find some traction and over time uh, starts scaling and scaling. And it's just a crazy story about someone who takes a concept like a running shoe, Nike, something that we take as just like, yeah, of course everyone wears tennis shoes. Of course athletic shoes are a thing. Of course you're thinking about what shoe you're wearing for what activity. But prior to this in the U.S., it wasn't totally the case. And he was able to take uh, that company. And it, 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 the biggest takeaway from that book was just uh, after reading it, I had this overwhelming sense of for every issue that arises, there is a way to get over it. And the, the issues that they faced over and over and over, they were able to attack them in such a way that 
it's it's like very humbling in a way that you go to whatever issue we have, it's definitely not going to be as stressful or as a big of a scale or as intense as the things that went down in that in that book. So that's Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. I don't want to give away too much on that one because it really does read like a movie. And he does a great job at being very open about how he felt in the moment and like not just well, this is our strategy for scaling this business and this is how we did it and this is how we got funding and blah, blah, blah. It, it, it was a great balance of the business side of things, but then also the personal side and dealing with uh, being able to grow through all of that. So that's number five would be Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. Highly recommended. Obviously a very popular book. I'm definitely not blowing anyone's mind by having this on a list of great business books, but it definitely needed to be included because I just that book was, I flew through that one. Uh, just like constantly had it on, uh, on my audio book going in the car the second I learned about that. Number four, isn't necessarily a business book. Uh, it's by Malcolm Gladwell. He's a social psychologist far and away my favorite author of all time. He has a lot of different books. His most popular one's probably Outliers, uh, but he's a social psychologist. And the thing I love about Malcolm Gladwell is he doesn't just make a theory and then explain why a hypothesis or theory could be true. What he does is he takes a topic first. So instead of like having a strong theory or hypothesis going into something, he'll have a topic and research it to a level that I haven't seen in many books or studies. And uh, the book I'm referring to here is called Tipping Point. And so Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell is my number four favorite. Let's, I'm calling it business book, but really this one is just more about like just social nature of humans. And the topic he went after were, this is before like becoming viral was a thing. And so it wasn't really a term, but essentially it was like, how do things become known or popular or now what people would call viral? How does that happen? And he doesn't just like give a bunch of case studies and say like, oh, it could be because of that and this. He does use case studies in an extremely effective way, but it's to prove things that are consistently true throughout all of these different case studies and goes into extreme detail of explaining it. And essentially what he comes up with that there are three major way things become extremely popular. It would be called the law of the few, the stickiness factor, and the power of context. The law of the few, uh, this is something I applied heavily when launching Folly. The law of the few is essentially if something, an idea, a product, uh, of whatever it may be, if it's endorsed, by specific groups of people, they're very likely, much more likely to find success. And these, he then breaks it down further than that and says these three groups of people that tend to be in every sort of like idea or product or whatever it may be that goes viral. The first one is called, uh, these are different types of people. The first one is called a connector. And a connector is someone who has ties to a lot of different groups. And when you think about this logically, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, if someone has an idea and they're only influential or known within one specific segment or one specific group or one specific like lane, 
if they tell people in that lane, it's going to stay within that specific group of people because they are only relevant or trusted or a, like reliable source of information for that one group of people. Uh, and so a connector is somebody who has kind of their hands in all different categories of uh, society or business or it's specific to what they're talking about. But like, let's say coffee uh, off the top of my head here. Let's so a connector in coffee could be somebody who's both connected in the restaurant world, the cafe side, uh, business world with offices. So a, a really influential connector in the coffee world could be somebody like that, that doesn't just have connections of like purely I'm a high-end specialty coffee person that uh, only has connections in these high-end cafes that only do pour over coffee and that's it. Now that's still a helpful person to know, but a connector is someone who has their hands in like all these different facets of business or just society or social groups. Uh, and I'm sure everybody can think of someone like that. Now, the second type of person is called a maven. The way I summed this up in my head after reading the book was a maven is like that person where you're just like, oh, I have a guy for that. So if you're like, oh man, where do I get like the best this? Like, where do I get the best cut of steak? Where do I get the best sandwich where do I everybody's like oh I got a guy that would know that for sure everybody has like their maven and a maven is someone who wants to help others make decisions and my takeaway this might not be like a super accurate uh kind of way to analyze it but my take on it is that a maven is typically an expert on that thing and so the maven is someone that People trust their opinion on it more than they trust their own. And that's why it's like, I have a guy for that. It's like, oh, who should I go to for this? Oh, I have a guy. I got to call that person and uh, and see what they think because you trust their opinion more than that. And so this was something that I definitely thought of heavily in launching Folly because I read this book right before we launched. This is something that I was listening to while we were building out the roasting facility in Silver Lake, which was about seven months, which... Looking back, it was almost like a seven months of just pure like podcasting and audiobook. But it made me change how to market Folly. Because when we were building out, I had, a, I think, a very traditional mindset of marketing. That's like, well, you know, maybe we'll do ads or maybe we'll sponsor events. Maybe we'll do pop-ups and uh, just try to catch people as they're at these events that it might be the right people for this. And when I heard this concept of the maven that everybody – like trust someone in their own more than their own opinion my goal after hearing that became i want every coffee expert in the twin cities in minnesota so starting like at a very kind of a more concise place i want every coffee expert to have tasted folly coffee within the first few months of launching and so really the only marketing i did early on was just giving away free coffee. That's like for every bag of coffee, you just keep track of how many you're giving away and that's your marketing spend. And so what I did is essentially anybody I met or even on Instagram is obviously a great way to do this. And this is like, this is what influencer marketing is. I think influencer marketing has lost its way a bit. It's getting like kind of weird and it seems like it's all Instagram is anymore. Uh, more, yeah, more on that for a different episode. But I wanted to find every everybody that has 
a good opinion on coffee or is knowledgeable in essentially any sense and make sure that they've tasted my coffee within the first few months of launching. And so the way I did this was, uh, well, first of all, this is one of those things going back to a previous episode that why it's extremely beneficial to start a business and something you're passionate in is I love going to coffee stuff. Latte art throwdowns. I love going to different cafes. I love trying different espressos and coffees and brewing methods and just speaking to anyone within the industry. So I loved this part of it, but I'm going to all these different coffee events and just straight up having my business card on me going, hey, you seem like you definitely are way into coffee. Can I just, can I either give you a bag? So if you have it on you, like bring coffee to these events or whatever your product may be or idea or whatever, uh, go to things where people who are knowledgeable are going to be. And I'm just like, here, I really want you to try this. I want completely 100% honest feedback. And that's, it works in two ways. One, if they're like, this coffee is great, there is now a maven in the Twin Cities that is going to recommend Folly if someone asks about it. On the flip side, uh, if they don't like it, you can get honest feedback and you can get better. So it's really a win-win in this sense. But the maven is who someone goes to that trusts the maven's opinion more than they trust their own about a specific topic. In our case, it was coffee. So I just want every person that someone trusts on their coffee opinions to have tasted Folly coffee and at the very least be like, yeah, that's a good cup. I would recommend it. And then the last one uh, out of the law of the few of tipping point is the salesman. Uh, Everybody knows the salesman. And this is someone that just seems to know everyone. And if I remember correctly uh, from the book, Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell, the way they defined the level of salesman you are is they took a random smattering of last names from the phone book, like hundreds of them, and these people had to go through and essentially identify, do they know someone with that last name? Now, obviously, there are some last names that's very specific. You're not going to know someone like that. So it's not like anyone's going to get, oh, I know someone with a last name 100% of the time. But the people who have a higher and higher number are these salesman people. And these are the people that are just extremely well connected. And so everyone seems to know someone like this where you can't go out in public with them without somebody coming up. Oh, what's up? And just like, do you know everyone, dude? Like, what is going on here? It's, It's like... I could definitely think of a handful of people like that. But this is where it's extremely obvious how this person could be beneficial to making an idea or a business or a product or something go viral or become popular or become known is that if uh, somebody uh, that's a salesman gets a hold of an idea and they're like, man, I need to tell people about that. They just have such a big network of people that they know that it's extremely effective. And these are generally people who don't do it for, I I don't like networking events. It's like a very weird energy to me. It's like, I I love them and hate them. I love them because it tends to draw on very passionate people who want to meet other passionate people. But on the other side, there's this kind of like fake, like, hi, who are you? And then behind their eyes, they're thinking, and how can you help me in my own personal endeavors? And I just, that, that energy drives me nuts. Uh, but this, the salesman personality tends to be someone who is actually extremely genuinely interested in knowing people and knowing what they're about. Uh, and they just have a very well-connected network of people that think highly of them. 
And so that's that's the law of the few, the connectors, the mavens, and the salesmen. Uh, and then the other two factors that went in the tipping point are called the stickiness factor and the power of context. These ones are a little bit less specific and uh, are a little bit less out of one's control in being able to make an idea become popular. Uh, the stickiness factor is uh, essentially how likely are people to pay close attention to an idea, to a product, whatever it is that we're talking about. Uh, in becoming popular. How likely are people to pay close attention? Now, I'm not going to go too far into this. It's hard to define, but uh, for my number one favorite book, I'll come back to stickiness factor. Let me highlight this here so I don't forget to do that. Stickiness factor. I'm going to use a green highlighter because the green's like, go ahead and talk about this. Uh, and so stickiness factor, I'll come back to that one when talking about my one favorite book because these play perfectly together. And then uh, the last three out of Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell is called uh, The Power of Context. Uh, this one, I, I had a little trouble wrapping my head around and it seems a little bit like... And sometimes the cards just fall into place. It's the right time. But I can see that it's it's how the environment plays a factor in an idea. Um, this one's a little harder to find. And Malcolm Gladwell does a really good job about it in the book. Uh, but when I when I listen to something or read something, I really try to either like stop or pause and uh, and try to recontextualize that idea in my own mind. That's how I learn best is not just listening to it, but is to listen to it and then stop and really think about what does that mean? How does it relate to what I'm doing? Uh, and try to reword the idea so that you're not just spitting back an idea. And I, power of context was the most difficult, but essentially it's the environment playing a factor in an idea. Uh, you could imagine how, um, like right now, politics is a great example. 10 years ago, certain topics definitely would not be something that would trend nationally on news. Now there are certain topics that if you bring it up and it's so picture uh, some sort of any sort of political topic right now that is uh, endorsed by uh, a maven or is uh, spread by a salesman or is uh, said by a connector who has connections in a ton of different groups. And then it's a very sticky idea because it's like politics right now is just anything is sticky. You could imagine the power of context would make it so that idea could go extremely viral. Whereas 10 years ago, certain things that are seem to be the most important issues of today, uh, were not so 10 years ago. That's that's how I look about it, the environment playing a factor. So that's number four, Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. You can tell I really liked the detailed-oriented nature of this book uh, by how much detail I went in just trying to summarize it. On to number three. Uh, number three is The Challenger. And this book is by Matthew Dixon and Brent Adamson. Uh, this book was recommended to my good buddy, Mikey Odierna uh, with uh, Boston Beer Company. He recommended this book to me, uh, and I trust his opinion on books. And so I immediately listened to it and was thrilled by it. Uh, this is for someone who is interested in sales. And sales is kind of a almost like that used car salesman vibe. I, I've, I've had people tell me that's like, well, I didn't want to do that because I didn't want to seem too salesy. My whole approach on it is like, if you have a small business and your livelihood and the health of your business in the future depends on you selling something, like 
I'm salesy. It's fine. I'm cool with that. And so this book is called The Challenger. Uh, much like Malcolm Gladwell, uh, the authors of this book did a really good job at thoroughly examining case studies and using multiple examples to prove uh, or to come up with a hypothesis. And the topic they were examining was in 2008, you have the recession. And they were finding that there were sales reps that continued to have a high level of success during the recession. So what they set out to do is to uh, explore a hypothesis or come up with a theory about how do you sell during recessions or essentially like how are these sales reps having success during a recession and the book was going to be like a how to sell during a recession. What they ended up figuring it out what they ended up figuring out is that it's not that these sales reps were having success during recessions. It's that these sales reps were having success all the time. And so the book turned from how to be a recession-proof salesperson to how to become a better salesperson. And they identified the most successful type of salesperson is called a challenger. And to start with the other types of sales reps, uh, I'm going to do a terrible job at summing this up. That's why I just read this book if you're interested in this. But you've got like your relationship salesperson that's like, oh man, that buyer of that place absolutely loves me. We have an awesome relationship. Uh, we, we get along so well. Our sales meetings are like hanging out and it's awesome. And this isn't a bad thing. Like, I'm not saying it's not important to have good relationships with your customers, but if the main reason your customer is buying from you versus someone else is because you have a good relationship, this holds up when things are good. When something like a 2008 recession hits, that person is not going to continue to buy, buy from this relationship sales rep because price becomes the number one factor. So when things are good and there's some fat on the bone and there's uh, you've got room to play, a relationship can outweigh something like price. Uh, but then all of a sudden a recession hits and sorry, man, like I love you. You're my favorite. Yeah, we're, we're, we're really tight and everything, but you know, I got to save money, so I'm going with the other supplier that beat your prices. And so that's kind of the relationship type person, whereas the challenger is someone that provides value by essentially, I say essentially a lot, I just figured out this episode, got to not do that anymore. But the challenger sales rep, what they do is they find ideas and hypotheses about that person's business before even talking with them and trying to present ideas to them that even they hadn't thought about. The, this, the, the idea, the concept that just hit me and I was like, whoa, that is an incredible point is if you're in a sales meeting or just a meeting with a buyer or you're trying to present your idea or product or whatever it may be and the person you are talking with is agreeing with everything you say, that's not good. And I heard that and I go, that doesn't make any sense. If they're agreeing with me, that means we're on the same page and everything's awesome. The reason that isn't good is because if they're saying, yes, exactly, totally, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yes, definitely. That means they've already thought about these things. So all you're doing by walking in your door and telling them these things is either telling them what they already know, 
maybe making them feel better about what they were already doing or honestly just wasting their time. So if you meet with somebody for a half hour, an hour, and they go, yeah, it's, you know, it looks like we're on the same page, but it's all stuff we're already doing. And, you know, I, I feel I feel better because I feel like someone validated what I'm already doing. But essentially, we, we didn't really talk about anything I didn't already know. The challenger is someone that goes in and presents an idea or a hypothesis about their business. And the person says, oh, I never thought about it like that. Because what that means is you presented an idea that they were not thinking about. And you are adding value to their business by giving them something that they didn't already know. And this is a really cool but very difficult concept uh, to achieve. The reason it's difficult is because making a hypothesis about someone's business without directly asking them can be... A risky move because if you go in and make a hypothesis and it's totally wrong and your entire idea that you're going to present to them is based off of that, it can derail everything. So it's sometimes better to go in with a few different ideas that could be going on. But someone with experience, uh, someone that's done their research, someone that's uh, obviously previously researched a business can come up with a pretty good idea of what's going on. So uh, this is something that I wish I knew during my Sam Adams days because I got to the point where I'm going to so many bars and restaurants on a daily basis, like 8 to 12 a day, that you can look at a bar or go to their website or do a little bit of research on which specials they're pouring or uh, who their clientele is or the location that they're in, that I could go into almost any bar and list off, here are your top 10 selling beers, here are probably your top 10 selling spirits. Uh, and then if you were to go in and be like, so I bet... Uh, I don't know, like, sports are big for you. Like, yeah, yeah, they are. We're a, <clears throat> we're a sports bar. It's like, you're wasting that person's time. But if you went in with an idea of how to utilize sports in a different way than how they've been doing it, you become an asset to that buyer. So it's not just about what you're selling. In my case, it was Sam Adams. If you, I wish I had known that if you could go in, it's like, I guess I kind of did this, but I didn't. I wasn't consciously doing it, and so I could have done it much better. But going into a place, and let's say in a different area, there's a sports bar, and you notice that they had a special where drinks were only on special for an hour leading up to every NFL game and an hour after every NFL game. And what that did for that business is it brought people in the door early, and it made them the destination for the games, and then... All of their drinks were full price during the game, and then they were likely to stay after the game because of the specials after the game. What this does is it drives your profitability during the game, which is three to four hours long, depending on the duration of the game. It gets the people there earlier. It gets them to stay longer. Is that something you might have considered? If, if they were doing, I don't know, like $5 pitchers during a game, could you imagine how much more money they would make if they're doing $20 pitchers, but the customer is just as happy because they're getting specials before and after the game? That's where you get a buyer that goes, whoa, I never thought about it like that. And then, yes, you need to have a good product. It needs to add value to their business. But the reason the challenger continues to succeed during a recession is because that person says, let's say in this case, I have that beer on tap because that 
that person is like a trusted asset to my business. And they're the ones that not just giving me a good product, but are also adding value to my overall business, almost becoming like a consultant to that person. So you could think how this could apply to coffee with me currently, but really any business or idea you have when talking to someone that is someone you're trying to, in most cases for business, it's a buyer. And that's what this book is about is selling. Uh, if you can present ideas or concepts that are new, uh, probably forward thinking or just new to them or new to an area, it can be a great way to become a challenger and be an asset. And then you're more or you're less susceptible to competition. You're less susceptible to other similar products coming in, pitching a lower price or more aggressive promotions or whatever it may be. And, uh, like, just take your business in that way. And as a small business, this is especially important because you're never going to have the most resources. You, you just aren't. And so you need to think, how can I protect myself against someone coming in and just undercutting my prices or doing a really aggressive promotion? And obviously the first move in that is have a superior product. That's why any small business needs to have a superior product to what's currently available on the market. But the other side is you personally in the way that you do business with your partners is that you are an asset to them. And this, this requires work. You can't just walk into someone's door, uh, start asking them questions and then pitch your idea. This can work if you have good questions and good insights and that your pricing makes sense and this and that, but it requires research upfront. It requires you to have a higher level understanding of your industry and your product and your competitors and even their competitors. It requires an understanding of all of these things to be able to truly come up with amazing insights that a buyer actually will sit back and go, whoa. Yes, I never thought about it like that. That's the ultimate goal. That's number three, The Challenger by Matthew Dixon and Brent Adamson. Moving on to number two. This is a very difficult thing to decide if this was going to be number one or two, but it just, it had to land at number two because number one is just so dang good. Number two is called Good to Great by Jim Collins. This is an amazing book about business. It is the, the most dense, like, the amount of information and takeaways and concepts. And the thing I love about it most is that they're all, you can apply them to your own business or your own ideas. Uh, is what I love most about this one is it's not just, okay, so the book is called Good to Great. And it's about existing businesses that have a good business. And this, the cool thing is they have strict definitions for what good means and they have strict definition for what great means. Uh, you'd have to read the book to get more into that, but they take existing good businesses and they track over time how they went from being stagnant at good, you know, profitable, solid business in business for many years, but then all of a sudden became great. Uh, extreme growth, profitability, a uh, multitude of factors that go into being great. And they analyze how and what happened to make these companies go from good to great. Uh, for example, one of them, and they're, they're recognizable companies. It's not like they take random small companies and they're like, and, and it's very apparent that they're not cherry picking companies to prove a point. Uh, it's like Walgreens is one of them. It's one of my favorite examples is Walgreens, uh, is a good business and they 
had tons of shops or a t- tons of pharmacies and uh you know their pharmacies had like sandwich shops in them and it was like a more of like a neighborhood store uh and he took the concepts from the book and applied it to this Walgreens case study and so I'm going to continue to use this Walgreens case study as I'm explaining the different factors that make or that uh all these companies that went from good to great have and uh how it relates back to Walgreens and so in this book he analyzed 28 companies it was him and a team of people, and they were digging through. And the, uh, you'll see kind of a, a similar strain of what makes me like a book or a study or anything is that they didn't go into it with preconceived notions. They went into it with a team of people, and they said, let's find any company that fits our definition of good and how, and then that they went to great and they had sustained greatness. And so let's take any company we can find that meets those parameters and going in with no preconceived notions about what made this happen what made that happen? And so they're not going in paid by someone saying like, oh, we're trying to market this or we're trying to prove this idea that this makes a great company. They go in with no preconceived notions and they are just digging through information and trying to find what is the same across all of these companies that caused them to go from good to great. And the first one was what's called level five leadership. Um, I'm not even going to go into detail of this one because it's, it's so much detail of what goes into level five leadership. Uh, but my biggest takeaway on this one is that it's not like the sexy CEO that makes a company great. This is something that is highly romanticized in business and entrepreneurship. Uh, the most famous being probably Steve Jobs. Like people idolize him and say like, that guy made that company great. And you're not wrong, but a company with like that where the CEO is the business and it's completely dependent on them, if they leave the company or if they're fired or if it's a tumultuous relationship and they leave, the company goes south. And so that doesn't make a great company. That makes a great CEO, which is a pretty volatile thing to have in a company. It can create a lot of tension if that's known because then like the people that work for let's say Steve Jobs, obviously, if you've read his biography, it's very apparent he was not fun to work for, but he people worked for him because of what he was able to do. Uh, and so it's not necessarily like the sexy, romanticized CEO that is uh, that is making great companies. It's more of someone that is making very uh, conscious decisions, uh, unemotional decisions, and uh, not letting that determine how things are done. There's no pride or ego in level five leadership. Uh, and this goes to another point from Good to Great, which is called a culture of discipline. So one of the things they found is that uh, as these new CEOs took over with level five leadership, which was consistent throughout uh, most, if not all of these Good to Great companies, is that uh, they created a culture of discipline. And this sounds like, it sounds pretty obvious like well yeah good company is going to be disciplined but discipline can be pretty hard when it comes to business because there are so many personal and emotional factors coming into play especially when you're talking about something like people's livelihoods and so on the surface some of these things that happen when the new ceo take over seem like extremely almost cruel and like cold but if the decision is here's the most inefficient part of our business and it's not working, and we're losing money, and if we continue to lose money, we go out of business. In a weird way, it's like that ethical decision of do we 
cut these jobs or do we let these people go for the sake of the entire company not going under and everyone being let go? That's like an example of the culture of discipline uh, that's created is, is, is things where it might not emotionally feel great. It might not be easy, uh, but a culture of discipline is how decisions are made within a company. Uh, and then my two favorite concepts are uh, from the book are the hedgehog, the hedgehog concept and then the flywheel slash doom loop. And so the hedgehog, the hedgehog concept is, it comes from, I, I won't be able to recount it perfectly, but uh, essentially it's, um, I said essentially again, I keep catching myself doing that. Uh, a hedgehog is not by any means a vicious, intimidating animal. It's not going to go into a battle and win a fight by fighting mano y mano. But the hedgehog is good, very, very good at one thing, curling up into a little ball and it's got spikes to protect itself. And that's how it survives. And so the hedgehog concept when it comes to business is what is the one thing that you or your business does better than anyone? And most often it's not just our product tastes the best or our product looks the best. It, it could be, it very well could be. But with, especially with something like taste, the differences in taste, especially when you have so something like the internet where you can get access across the country, across the world to any product, it's very, very difficult to have far and away the best taste that that's your hedgehog, clearly your hedgehog concept is that Taste is the number one thing. Now, obviously, that's what we pursue at Folly and at Filterra. But the hedgehog concept is, what is the one thing that you do better than anyone, any business of any size? And uh, this can be applied to a local market. So if you say, I want to build a, 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 a great business in Minneapolis, you could limit it to what do we do better than anyone in the Minneapolis Twin Cities area. Uh, but if you have intentions of scaling uh, regionally, nationally, this concept becomes even more important. Because as you enter new markets, if you don't have one thing that you can hang your hat on that you say, this is definitively what we do better than anyone else, it's not going to succeed without a lot of resources. And as I went back to early earlier, You'll never be the one with the most resources. And so hedgehog concept, it's difficult. And quite frankly, I'm still working on what it is for Folly, still working on what it is for Filterra. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty difficult to know. And it's something to always be keeping in mind and striving towards is finding out what are you the best at. Uh, this is something if you have a great relationship with a customer, asking them. The, the sad truth is, you might ask them, why did you choose us and get an answer that you don't want? A great example for a small producer, a small local business is a lot of people, a lot of time people will choose you because they're like, oh, I like that you're local. Ooh, it's kind of hard to create a hedgehog concept on we're the most local. So it's like you can only with that hedgehog concept, you can only sell the businesses that you could throw a rock at their place of business or drive within five minutes. Uh, and so the, the, the more concise of a concept you can have, the better. 
And then the, I referenced the flywheel and doom loop. And so the flywheel, he this was such a big concept, he wrote an entirely separate book that I also read called The Flywheel. And what it is is uh, the set of processes you have in place of how you do business and you continue to do those. And a flywheel is the thing that when you first start turning it, it's really hard to turn when it's still. But then as you get going, it goes faster and faster and faster and faster. And then eventually you're barely applying any pressure to it, but the flywheel's flying. Uh, that It's kind of taking that and applying it to business. That what set of three to five things, do we, what is our cycle as a business for growth? And how do we apply them? And that's our flywheel, that every time we go around that cycle again, that it gets easier and faster and bigger and scalable and more profitable and faster growth. Uh, Amazon is the most famous example he references in the book uh, that it's, it like makes it seem so simple. Uh, it's very difficult to identify your flywheel attributes, but once you can, it, much like the L10 meeting with what the heck is EOS or the entrepreneur operating system, once you can identify these things, it makes decision-making very easy. And so something I like in these business books is things that make decisions easier to make because decisions are so, so hard to make when there's so many options at all time because you're the one deciding where to go. And then the doom loop is the opposite of that, that if you have the wrong concepts in place, every turn of that wheel, things get worse and worse and worse and faster and faster and faster and worse, and then you're out of business. And so good to great by Jim Collins, highly recommend it. Even if you don't have a business, this is a great read. Uh, and it makes you look at some of these great companies in a much more simplistic way. Sometimes you look at like a Walgreens. And so what they did is applying their hedgehog concept at Walgreens was that, we are the most convenient pharmacy. So anything that didn't make them the most convenient pharmacy, shut it down. So they had like sandwich shops and all this other stuff. Is that a pharmacy? Does that make you a more convenient pharmacy? No, shut it down because a sandwich shop is not a pharmacy. So you shut it down. They shut down all their sandwich shops, even though it was a profitable part of their business. And then most famously, they will literally shut down a profitable store and move it three blocks away if it's more convenient, if it's a higher traffic location with entrances on multiple sides. So if you're down the street and you only have one entrance and exit, that's convenient. But being on a, a street corner where there's two entrances and exit on a high traffic area, that's more convenient. So they spent like, like they'll spend over a million dollars relocating a single store with the long-term vision that they know they are the most convenient pharmacy. And that just, that blew my mind because it seems simple, but could you imagine making a proposition that, hey, let's shut down a long-sustaining profitable store and move it within eyesight. But that's how you take a good business and make it great. And they go through the flywheel uh, for Walgreens as well and the way they scaled that. Uh, yeah, I thought it was really cool. Good to Great by Jim Collins. Finally, number one favorite book pertaining to business, uh, heavily in the marketing side, is called Blue Ocean Strategy. It's by W. Chan Kim, and I'm going to mess this name up, but Renee Maborny, M-A-U-B-O-R-G-N-E, Maborny, Maborny, something like that. Blue Ocean Strategy. 
the idea here is if, and again, if, if you know me or you've talked to me about business in probably the past three to four years, we've probably talked about this at some point. So blue ocean strategy, the idea is, is if you have a product and you're entering an existing category or market and your strategy is just to do something very similar to what everybody else is doing on the market and just try to take a slice of that existing business pie, you're going to enter a red ocean because if the market is the ocean and uh, every every competitor is a shark, that ocean's going to be full of blood because all the sharks are going after the exact same thing. The blue ocean is how can you create a product or a strategy or a set of systems that are opposite or so different from what everybody else is doing on the existing market that you're not even really directly competing with them. Now, it's again, it, this is one you have to read to fully grasp because not only do they just lay out what it is, they also give you ways to apply it. This is one that I highly recommend reading before you start a business. But even if you have an existing business, this may make you change how you go about your business. So for example, uh, in applying to kind of folly a little bit, uh, which is my coffee roaster, let's take the existing coffee industry. This is one that when I told people I was starting a coffee business, I got a lot of eyebrow raises. Like, coffee, dude, like, have you heard of Starbucks before? They kind of got that stuff on lock. It's like, that's a, it's a good point. You know, it's just a lot of coffee roasters out there. A lot of them doing really great stuff. Uh, brand equity is like ubiquitous for Starbucks in the Midwest for Caribou. There's a lot of you know Dunn Brothers. There's a lot of these roasters that have so much value in their brand and so much brand loyalty that when I said, "Yeah, I'm gonna start roasting coffee," he's like, "All right, man. I'll see you in a couple of years when you're back on the job market." Um, and so a lot of it was. Taking strategic approaches to the business. Now, Folly Coffee for me started purely out of passion for lightly roasted, what, what's called like really third wave style coffee. That's not wildly popular in the Midwest yet. It's, it's here. There are people doing a great job at it. It exists. But I wanted to approach it differently. And Blue Ocean Strategy helped me sh- uh, change my thinking in this. So, for, for example, I looked at the existing coffee market. And I go, how is it being marketed? How is it being communicated? What styles of coffee are uh, the ones that are most popular and being sold the most? And so I look at the existing coffee market and going, okay, so it's like kind of like mid-range coffee that retails for like anywhere from $5.99 to $10.99 a bag for a 12-ounce bag or a one-pound bag. Uh, I went to grocery stores and looked at the shelves and you go, okay, the packaging is either kind of like that kind of like craft cardboard type feel with a sticker. It looks very upscale, almost like a like wine-like, very upscale, uh, like almost pretentious kind of like uh, uppity vibe. Or it's the flip side, super colorful, super intricate. Uh, looks beautiful when you're looking at it up close, but on a shelf it can get kind of lost. And so my Blue Ocean strategy for a branding side was how can I create a package that is the opposite of what everybody else is doing? So I said, okay, everybody seems to have a very serious vibe going on. So my vibe needs to be really fun and cool. 
And um, I look at craft beer as a great example. Like craft beer, it's just fun and cool and you want to be a part of it. So I'm like, okay, I want to, I want to create a brand like that, which is great because that's more fun than being serious. And so I wanted to create something that's fun and cool. And then from a color scheme and aesthetic appeal, I said, okay, everything seems to be bright or kind of this craft cardboard. So I want something that's a really dark background. And then a lot of the designs were very intricate and complex and like very artistic. So I said, I need something very clean, very clean with uh, bright colors to contrast the back of that so that it billboards really nicely on the shelf. If you're not familiar with the term billboarding, billboarding is when all of your products sit next to each other on a shelf, does it create a billboard? Is it clear that those are all the same line of products? So the dark background created an awesome billboarding effect. And then the bright faces that were kind of like cool and fun created this uh, contrasting look to it that made us stick out on the shelf. So even though right now we're terrible shelf position at a lot of stores, we're still able to sell, which is awesome. And I attribute a lot of that to Blue Ocean strategy. I was able to apply what they said and the concepts they laid out and look at the existing industry for coffee and say, how can I do everything opposite? And then even roasting third wave style, like light roasted, super high and vibrant, colorful, flavorful coffees. I even looked at that industry and said, how can I do things differently than existing people in that industry? And looking at like sales channels, where are people not focusing? Are there places that I don't think roasters are focusing enough on? And so those are the places I tend to look from like a sales strategy side. And so Blue Ocean Strategy, highly recommend it. It definitely changed the way I think about uh, business. And going back to the stickiness factor, how likely, so from uh, Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell, I said I was going to reference this later. Here it is. Stickiness factors, how likely are people to pay close attention to your product? Well, if you just launch another product that's really similar in taste or profile or you know familiarity, some people know what it is right away, it's, and then the branding is kind of familiar, even if it's different or whatever, it's kind of familiar. I've seen something like that before. Probably not going to pay very much attention to that. The stickiness factor is very low because it's it's not novel. It's like not a novel idea. It's I've seen something like this before. I've tasted something like this before. I've used something like this before. I've heard an idea like that before. The deeper you can go into the Blue Ocean strategy, the more of a stickiness factor you have, going back to Malcolm Gladwell, and the more of a stickiness factor you have, the more those connectors, mavens, and salesmen are likely to uh, recognize and notice your product. And then if you have the power of context and you can apply the concepts in good to great to your business and then be a challenger sales rep and then know that you can get through any challenge like shoe, like Phil Knight and Shoe Dog, and then you can keep your business organized and concise and unemotional with what the heck is EOS? That is a solid arsenal of knowledge and tools to have in your Batman utility business belt to be able to launch, to be able to grow, to be able to sustain a business. I totally just wrapped that up. That's got to be the end of the podcast right there. Uh, Again, if you have any books, if you have any podcasts, I'm on the road. Like I feel 99% of my life. uh, Comment here. Send me an email. Rob at follycoffee.com. Seriously, I want more. I'm just trying, always trying to learn more. Uh, Read these ones. Let me tell you, let me know what you think about them. Besides that, I'll end it like I always do. Just say, have a great day.